today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. People can be offended by that. What do you mean I'm going to hell? What do you mean I am a sinner? What do you mean I need to be saved? What do you mean Jesus is the only way? That's narrow-minded, that's bigoted, that's all that kind of stuff people will tell you. But what I try to encourage people to remember is if you really believe that you have within your care something that is liberating, healing, and eternal, I mean, why wouldn't you want to share that? It just really comes down to the degree that you believe it and the degree that you understand the desperate condition of the human soul. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Timothy. Lately, it seems as though any sort of semblance of truth is considered hate speech and bigoted by extreme groups in our society. Even if that truth is beneficial and serves to address the problems of our culture, people seem to be all the more offended. In today's message, Pastor Gary will encourage you to stand firm in your faith as an ambassador of the ultimate truth, the death and resurrection of Christ. In his study, you'll learn that while society at large finds the gospel offensive, they're no less in need for a Savior. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 5 tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're making our way here through Paul's letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles because Paul is giving pastoral advice to a young Timothy and also a young Titus as they would lead their respective churches. And uh, so these letters are basically instructions for the church in very practical ways uh, as to how the church should conduct itself. So things that should define the church, we're making our way through a list, and so far in our study of 1 Timothy, we've seen a a few points. Number one, it should be a place of sound doctrine. Number two, it should be a place of grace where people come in with sinful, messed up lives and find forgiveness in the Lord because they experience His saving grace. It should also be a place of prayer where we pray for everyone, Paul says in chapter 2, particularly for all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives, but we should pray for everybody. And then also we looked at number four, it should be a place where there are godly elders and deacons. And uh, the qualifications for elders and deacons are given respectively in chapter 3. It's not that God is looking for perfect people, but He's looking for people who will live according to a higher standard. If you're going to be leaders in the church of the Lord, or in the case of deacons, if you're going to be you know, ministers, servants in the house of the Lord, you, you need to have your life at a place where it is exemplary. Not perfect, but exemplary. 
And so there's a, there's a tall order. There's a list given in chapter 3 for both elders and deacons. Uh, and then into chapter 4, Paul warns here that in latter times, some will abandon the faith. That's what he says in verse 1, that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So his warning is that in latter days, as we get closer to the return of Christ, it's, it's not just the tragedy that some will abandon the faith, but it's even more tragic that some will start to believe false doctrines, deceiving spirits, things taught by demons, that there will actually be an abandoning of the true faith and there will be an embracing of false faiths. And we're seeing a rise in our own culture of, of Islam and Hinduism and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and Sikhism and Shintoism and Buddhism. I mean, it, it's continually gaining traction in our world, especially as we get closer to the return of Christ. So we have this wonderful privilege and obligation of sharing the truth with people and letting them know about the truth of Christ and the love of Jesus and he died on a cross for their sins. Don't shy away from it and don't get caught up in this game of, well, I, I just, I, I don't want to be offensive to people. Listen, truth by itself is offensive and, and you, you can't escape that. It is both exclusive and offensive. It doesn't have to be presented in an offensive way, but what I mean by that is when, when one person, and I can remember my own life, when an individual's confronted with truth, it feels offensive at first until you surrender to it, believe it, accept it, and embrace it. So if you want to live your life the way you want, and then you're, you're confronted with the truth of Jesus, no matter how it's presented in a loving, wonderful package, People can be offended by that. What do you mean I'm going to hell? What do you mean I am a sinner? What do you mean I need to be saved? What do you mean Jesus is the only way? That's narrow-minded, that's bigoted, that's all that kind of stuff people will tell you. But what I try to encourage people to remember is if you really believe that you have within your care something that is liberating, healing, and eternal, I mean, why wouldn't you want to share that? It just really comes down to the degree that you believe it and the degree that you understand the desperate condition of the human soul. Because if you, for example, were a doctor and you came across finally a, a cure for cancer, here's one remedy, one pill, one vaccine, one something for the cure of cancer. It's not narrow-minded to be able to say to every cancer patient, here, if you take this, you'll, you'll be cured. Uh, and, and for the sake of being politically correct, how tragic would it be to say, well, you know, if you don't want this, you don't have to. There's some other remedies that, you know, might. truth is exclusive and truth is liberating if you believe it and if you share it with people who are desperately in need of it. And so as Christians, we're called to, you know, look, present the truth, present it wrapped in the love of Jesus, let God do the rest of the work, but it's important that we follow truth, understand truth, obey truth, because we're living in a day where more and more people will abandon the truth and will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, which leads us to point number five. Paul says that's why it's important that the church should be a place where it's teaching the Bible, because the Bible, God's handbook for truth, uh, is the source of truth, is going to be the information that we need to live our lives in truth, to walk in truth, and to share the truth. And listen, the more that you know the truth, you will be able to spot a lie. You see, when the warning here is that some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, the truth of the matter is that I don't really need to spend a whole lot of time trying to expose deceiving doctrines inside and outside the church, because there are those things. But my main responsibility is if I just simply teach God's word simply, 
then as you grow in truth and as you for yourself study God's word and understand what it says, then you will understand, you'll be able to spot the deception. You'll be able to spot the lie. You'll be able to spot what is heretical because you will be grounded in the truth. Uh, years ago, John MacArthur wrote a book called Restless Truth, or sorry, Restless Faith. And in the book, MacArthur talked about how federal agents who uh, specialize in spotting counterfeit money don't spend their time studying counterfeit money. They spend their time studying real currency because if you spend your time studying real currency, then you'll be able to spot the counterfeit. So, and that's the way it should be in our faith. Now, I read this interesting, this guy, this, this Canadian author who, who uh, took issue with what MacArthur wrote in, in his book about federal agents, you know, only being trained primarily in the study of real currency. And so he decided to take it upon himself to see if he was accurate. So uh, he, he wrote in his blog, curious person that I am, I decided to find some answers I called the Bank of Canada, he's Canadian, he said, and I worked my way through various levels of bureaucracy and eventually arranged a meeting with one of the nation's foremost experts on counterfeit currency. He says, it turns out that John MacArthur is correct. Training and identifying counterfeit currency begins with studying genuine money. There are certain identifying characteristics that are added to each bill printed by the Bank of Canada, and using this example that he experienced, these characteristics are necessarily difficult to reproduce. Some are intended to stump the casual counterfeiter, armed with no more than a scanner and a color laser printer, and some will stump the more serious counterfeiter, even if armed with expensive high-tech equipment. So the point of the matter is that if you really want to be able to spot what is deception and be be uh, protected against deceiving doctrines and things taught by demons. You don't need to be studying the, the, the deceptive stuff. You need to be studying the truth and be equipped in your faith by knowing the Word of God, and then you'll be able to tell what is a lie, and you'll be able to tell what is deceptive. So he focuses here in chapter 4 about teaching the Bible, and that's why he says in verse 13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. And then he gets into chapter 5, which is where we left off here, and it's number 6 on our list. He's going to talk about how the church would be a place where it is caring for people, where it is caring for people. And he's actually going to talk about three groups of people, three categories of people. He's going to talk about older widows, he's going to talk about younger widows, and he's going to talk about elders. Now, you might read those three topics and think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm none of those. You might say to yourself, I'm not an older widow, I'm not a younger widow, I'm not an elder, and how is this, ch- how is this chapter relevant to me? Well, the fact is, again, it's, it's all just being you know, educated and equipped in our faith to understand this is what the church should look like, this is how it should function. So let's take a look together here at chapter 5. First he begins in verse 1 by saying, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father, and treat younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So again, he's instructing Timothy as a pastor. He says, now listen, and Timothy again was around 30 years of age. So he says, when you are dealing with older men, I want you to show respect to them. I want you to treat them as, as you would your father. Now, this, of course, assumes the idea that we know how to respect our elders. Otherwise, the analogy doesn't work. I grew up in the day where you, you back-talked, you know, your dad once, 
And then after that, you know, you, you were injured, you know what I'm saying? And, and, you, and you learned respect very, very quickly. And unfortunately, we're, we're living in a day where, you know, elders are not as respected as, as they once were, but they should be. And so the instruction from Paul to Timothy is, when you're dealing with an older man in your church, you need to t- treat him with respect. You need to exhort him. The Greek word there is perikaleo, meaning to come alongside of him, like to encourage him as if he were your father. And you need to treat younger men as brothers. Yo, bro. I mean, it's, it's good to treat them as brothers. Older women as mothers. Again, showing respect to them. And younger women as sisters. And he adds there with absolute purity. And I think it's, you know, not just that Timothy had some kind of problem with younger women. And so he's saying absolute purity, Timmy. But I think it's just the idea that in general... Uh, we should see each other as family. And he says, you know, treat older men like fathers, treat older uh, women like mothers, treat younger men like brothers, younger women like sisters. We, we should have a, a love and respect for each other like we're family, because we are, we're, the, we're part of the family of God. And so we should be treating each other with decency and love and respect and encouragement and, and to do this with purity. And then he gets into verse 3 and on with dealing with widows. And the first category he's going to look at are the older widows. And so in verse 3, he says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is, and he uses this phrase again, really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. We'll pause there. And again, the idea is give people the instructions. Here's what we're doing on a Wednesday night. We're going through God's word. We're reiterating these things so that people can understand the instructions for how the church should function. So he's going to talk here about older widows. And and the first thing he wants to distinguish between are those who are really in need versus those who are not really in need. And he's going to define that. He only means that in the sense of regarding whether the church should help them. Okay, a widow who has lost her husband is obviously in need, no matter what the situation. So he's not saying some, you know, are are really desperate and others aren't. I mean, it's a desperate thing to be a widow or to be a widower for that matter. But he's saying as far as the church's involvement, what should the church be doing in coming alongside of widows financially, materially, spiritually? And so he wants to distinguish between those who are really in need and those who aren't, because those who aren't should not become a burden to the church. He uses that word. I'm not trying to be disingenuous to widows by referring to them as a burden. He just talks about it could become a financial burden to the church to try to take care of too many widows who aren't really in need. But those who are in need, he says the church needs to step up and help to take care of them. Now he's going to distinguish, and and what he says here about those who are not really in need are those who have children and grandchildren. Because he says there in verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. So if a widow has 
children or grandchildren, this obviously means adult children or grandchildren because little tiny kids can't really take care of mom who's a widow. But the inference is if you have adult children or grandchildren who are able to take care of you, then family should take care of family first. I mean, biological family. The, the church family is secondary. So if a widow has children or grandchildren that can take care of her, they should. And, and he says here, and I love the way he adds there in, in verse 4, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. And what does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is the obvious, isn't it? It's like, listen, this, the widow now, who, whether she's your mom or your grandma, when you were a kid, she fed you, she changed your stinking diaper, all right? She took care of making sure all your needs were met. She stayed up with you in the middle of the night when you had a fever, all right? She was always there for you, taking care of you. Now she's in need, and you need to return the favor. You need to take care of her. You need to repay her with, with similar kindness. Take care of her now. Now you're older, and she's in a place where, in particularly first century Roman Empire, you became a widow, you became destitute. And sometimes widows would resort to things in order to try to just survive. And Paul says that as Christians, the immediate family has a responsibility to take care of their mom or their grandma. And in this way, you repay them for their kindness in the many ways that they took care of you as a kid. For this pleases the Lord. Now, then he talks there in verse 5 about the widow was really in need. Man, she's left all alone, and she's going to have to put her hope in God And she continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. And so she's in a more desperate situation because she has no family. And that's why she's, quote, more really in need. And so he's going to call the church to help step up and take care of her. But then he's also going to talk about the qualifications for one who's really in need. Because she may not qualify. And he's going to talk about that a little bit. But notice verse 6, he says, But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. In other words, if, if, if there's a widow and she is just turning to a different lifestyle now that she's, you know, separated from her husband, her husband has died and she's just living for the world. He says she, she's dead even while she lives. And he says, give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. He says, I, I want you to treat everybody properly and I want you to know your responsibility in all of this. And he says in verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family... He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is strong language. Now, in the context, he's talking here about taking care of widows. So he says, if you have a mom or a grandma who's a widow, and she's a part of your family, and you have the means and the wherewithal to take care of her, and you don't, Paul says, you're worse than an unbeliever. You're worse than an unbeliever. Because believers don't treat their family members like that. Believers take care of each other. And look out for each other and tend to each other's needs. But I also think, that's the context, I also think that this verse can apply from time to time to people who just have a lazy work ethic. And there's been a couple times over the years of my ministry that I've pulled this verse out and talked to some men who need to get a job. Now I know that there can be legitimate, real circumstances sometimes why a man is not gainfully employed. There, he can be laid off, he can be fired, he can have health issues. Um, there, there can be other extenuating circumstances. So taking that into consideration, that's legitimate. But then there are just some men who don't take care of their family and uh, some deadbeat dads who don't pay child support and, and, and guys who just are lazy 
And this verse should be a strong reminder to every provider that if we don't provide for our family, we've denied the faith and we're worse than an unbeliever. It's a very sobering verse to make sure that we're doing all we can to work hard and to take care of our family members in need. Now, between verses 9 and 10, he's going to talk about the qualifications for a widow who was really in need. And this, is, and this is where the church needs to step up and help. So he says in verse 9, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Wow, who can make the list? I mean, that's, that's a pretty strong list there, Paul. But here's basically, just to summarize the four things, he says she, she needs to be over 60, she, she, and, and she can't have any family, thus the church needs to step up and be her family. She has to have a reputation that she was faithful to her husband during the days of their marriage, and she has to have strong spiritual character. That's why he says all these things like, you know, she has to be, you know, showing hospitality, washing all the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble. I mean, so he makes this list here. Now, it's not intended to be legalistic, all right? You know, if, if some widow were to show up at our church office, a part of our church family, and she's 59 and a half, <laughs> we're not going to say, sorry, you don't meet the list. And by the way, you have to wash my feet. You know, I mean, hmm, that would actually be, no, but anyway. And the other weird thing here is, just by way of statistics, in first century, the average lifespan, you know the average lifespan? 37. So Paul says here, average lifespan is 37 in Paul's day, but if you don't reach the age of 60, you're not on the list. I mean, that's, who's making it? The six, I did a little math, and, and the, the, the equivalent ratio, because today's average lifespan is 78, so the equivalent ratio would be that a widow has to be 130. Isn't that too bad? Like, you don't make the cut. That's, that, that's not what he's saying here, all right? He's saying there has to be a way to tell legitimate need from illegitimate need. And so if she's up there in years, and she has no family, and she's been faithful in her marriage, and she just loves the Lord and has a good heart, the church needs to be the family for her. But see, he's also recognizing that if the church is too careless in this regard, that the church then could deplete itself of its resources trying to help people who aren't really legitimately in need. I can tell you, you know, we have a benevolence fund here at our church. 10% of everything you give goes to our benevolence fund. Uh, I I should say outreach fund because that 10% serves not only local benevolent needs but also missions. And we have people who will have legitimate needs in our own congregation that we have helped. We also have people outside our church who will call us, drop by. We've had social services when they've run out of their budget for the year of Loudoun County. They've contacted our church, said, can you help out families? And, and we've been glad to oblige. But we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that these are legitimate needs. Because we just can't have everybody showing up saying, I want a handout. Because then we're not being good stewards of what God has entrusted to our care. Your new life. 
Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary's teaching in 1 Timothy may be at an end today, but you are encouraged to continue studying for yourself. God speaks through His Word, and He wants to interact with you as you read. We're so glad you joined us, and we'd like to let you know that we're praying for you, our valued listener. With each new edition of this program, is there anything happening in your life right now that we could specifically be lifting up to the Lord? or anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? If so, please let us know. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. That number again is 703-771-1500. Would you join us in praying for your fellow listeners too? Pray that the gospel message would be heard loud and clear every time they tune in, and that their hearts would be changed by Christ. Pray too for Pastor Gary and this ministry that we would remain focused on God's truth and not on what we desire. Thanks for praying. If you'd like to learn more about Cornerstone Connection, or if you're in the area and would like to come visit us in person, visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Join Pastor Gary next time for more from 1 Timothy, right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul You've got no place to go But still you know